Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, we speak to Emmy Bidston and Dr. Katie Granville-Chapman about leadership for flourishing. Emmy Bidston is an Associate Fellow of the Oxford Character Project and a Senior Fellow of the Human Flourishing Programme at Harvard's Flourishing Network. She studied economics at the University of Cambridge before working for the UK civil service in a range of areas from education to contingency planning. She's currently head of economics at Wellington College and director of the Wellington Leadership and Coaching Institute. She co-founded a charity to help develop young leaders in Africa and runs conferences, coaching and leadership training for adults and young people. Dr. Katie Granville-Chapman is an associate fellow of the Oxford Character Project, doctoral teaching fellow at Oxford University's Department of Education, a research associate at the Oxford University Wellbeing Research Centre, and a senior fellow of the Human Flourishing Programme at Harvard's Flourishing Network. She's the co-founder of Global Social Leaders, a movement of young people in 105 countries who design and lead social action projects to make meaningful change in their communities. She's also deputy head teacher at Wellington College, focusing on teacher performance and development, and founder of the Wellington Leadership and Coaching Institute. Emmy and Katie are co-authors of the book Leader, Know, Love and Inspire Your People, which has been shortlisted for the Business Book Awards Leadership Book of the Future and longlisted for the Chartered Management Institute's Management Book of the Year. And that book is a central part of our conversation today. We discuss leadership for flourishing, what this means and how to lead in a way that promotes human flourishing, what makes a good leader in terms of their skills, strengths, attributes and qualities, how to promote flourishing through leadership and other key themes of their book. We discuss their various projects and what we can learn from these projects and about their work in these areas, about how to best promote human flourishing, for example, in their work on coaching to promote human flourishing. And we discuss their backgrounds in various career roles, as you've seen I've highlighted there, and how this informs their current work on promoting flourishing. It's a great conversation. Hope you love it. This is our conversation on leadership for flourishing with Emmy Biston and Dr. Katie Granville Chapman. Emmy, Katie, how are you doing? Welcome. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for joining us today. You're good friends of Nick and mine. So it's great to have you on the podcast here today. You're great supporters of our podcast. And we're really excited to dig in deep to your expertise, particularly on leadership and flourishing. Now, I had the pleasure of reading your book, Leader, before this. uh, We both had the pleasure of reading this book before this conversation, Know, Love and Inspire Your People. The first thing I noticed reading this was how rich and varied your backgrounds are. I didn't realize you'd had such fascinating and varied careers. This is amazing. So, Emmy, you were formerly in the UK Civil Service, and Katie, you were formerly in the British Army, and you've since moved into leadership roles in schools and also become teachers, coaches, trainers, and researchers. You've inaugurated many programs and involved in many programs that aim to show what it means to lead, to promote flourishing at a large scale, and train leaders to lead in this way. So could you both tell us about your journeys that have brought you to where you are now? Let's start with, with you, Emmy. Oh, thank you, John. I was thinking about this question, and I think I've always had a really strong sense that purpose for me was intrinsically wound up with my own flourishing. So I picked economics to study because I thought this is the subject that could change the world. If we get it right, people have jobs, you know, we can solve poverty. If we get it wrong, we create real issues in society. So I picked it for that reason. Ended up in the civil service. Most of my friends went into finance and banking, I think probably because that's where the, the money and the excitement was back in the kind of early 2000s. But but I knew from just work experience that it wouldn't work for me, that I wanted something which had that kind of, yeah, greater sense for me of kind of public service and kind of just knew that good institutions make for flourishing societies and wanted to be part of that. And then kind of late, later, 
in life, um, shadowed a friend who was a teacher and um, turned up and it was a, one of those moments of calling where I thought I was born to teach. I didn't know it till now. I just knew from like walking in the classroom. And John, you talk a lot about flow. And I think from the moment I stepped in a classroom, I have always experienced that, well, 90% of the time, that experience mm-hmm. of, kind of flow and just kind of like knowing it's where I'm meant to be and kind of being lost in it and really loved it. And then my leadership journey comes with Katie. So I'm going to let her go next because our journeys kind of then meet at Wellington and join together. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much, Emmy. And yeah, the greatest joy is to get to work with you. So I joined the army thinking, oh, I really want to make the world a better place. I was hoping to join the Royal Engineers and build schools and hospitals around the world. And I was quite young, naive at the time, but I did end up joining the army. And what I found was that leadership just made the most profound impact on people, much more of an impact than I was expecting. And so where soldiers had a leader who cared deeply about them and put their flourishing first and was really interested in their growth and connecting them with purpose and what matters in life, they could flourish in the most horrendous of situations. So the physical environment, 45, 50 degrees heat in the back of an armoured vehicle, carrying loads of kits, serious threat to life. And yet they were still able to flourish if the leader really, really cared about them. And the opposite was true. So when things were really relaxed and we were back at home and not much going on, that's quite fun stuff. If the leader didn't care about the soldiers and didn't put them first and didn't really care about whether they had good well-being or great career paths, then they could really, really languish, even though there were no particular physical difficulties. They had enough to eat. They were paid fine. So Mm -hmm. that was really, really fascinating. And that got me slightly obsessed with leadership because I felt it could be such an impactful force in the world. And I guess um, education, I switched into education because the part of the army I was in, I was pretty useless, actually. I was in logistics. And if anyone knows me, I'm dreadful at detail and I should never be asked to organize the logistics for anything. So it was quite a relief to find something that I could kind of vaguely do. Um, It was quite heart-wrenching in some ways because I was a troop commander. So I had 64 soldiers that I was looking after. Well, commanding apparently, although clearly I wasn't at all at age 22. There was no command whatsoever. But at Sandhurst, where you're trained, you're taught to serve to lead. And that really hit a, that really resonated with me really tragically. So 20 of the soldiers out of the 64 literally couldn't read and write, even after 12 years of British education. And over half of them had no GCSEs, so not even an E grade in maths or English. And so I ended up thinking, oh, my gosh, there is actually something I can do to serve these soldiers because I can read and write. Brilliant. So I started teaching them and talking to them about why we might be deploying to Iraq and Northern Ireland and things like that. And I became really, really passionate about it. And then I was super lucky because in the military, I was able to teach leadership. And that was the main part of my job, as well as kind of running various things and I suppose leading various things myself, which was really fortunate. And But I felt really ill-equipped to do it. So that led to when I went into teaching full time, thinking I've really got to get better at this. I've got to understand leadership better. And I guess I started from a performance point of view. And I was like, because performance mattered so much in the military, because performance is life or death. So and then what I came to was the realization that actually flourishing or well-being is the key to performance. And intrinsically, um, there is no argument against it. There can be. So I ended up doing a master's and then a PhD or a DPhil at Oxford looking specifically at 
leadership that empowers people to flourish. Awesome. So where do you two then meet? Do you meet at Wellington College by accident? Did you know each other before you worked there? No, we, no, we met at Wellington. Um, Katie had set up this amazing leadership and coaching institute, along with many other things at Wellington. And at some point, she kind of got promoted to a higher level and needed someone to, to run it. And so put out an advert. And the kind of purpose of this institute is to develop leaders with the passion, character and skills to serve and make a positive difference in the world. And I read this kind of advert for this kind of post and was like that is why I get out of bed in the morning I want to be part of this I've got no idea if I have the right skills or the right background they probably won't want me but but I want to be part of it and so we I kind of talked to Katie and she very kindly let me get involved and that was the start of our, our journey and it's been a real adventure together since then and we've thoroughly enjoyed working together Awesome. So let's just clarify then, because you guys have so many projects going on. It's it's stunning, staggering. I was like looking through various websites for things you have going on ahead of this interview and kept just adding more and more to the list that Nick and I share about our guests. We're doing research. Let's just talk a bit about this, about the various things you've got going on now. So tell us what your roles are now at Wellington, because one of you, you're both in leadership roles. One of you is running a coaching institute. One of you's head of performance. So Emmy, your role at Wellington. So I teach economics. That still fills my days and I absolutely love it. We also kind of tutor, so lots of kind of pastoral work, focusing on individual flourishing of small groups of pupils. Sport, we both kind of coach triathlon. But then the bigger leadership role is in charge of this leadership and coaching institute, which on mm-hmm. one level is training adults. So like every new member of staff gets trained in coaching when they come into the school. We run a course called Leading for Impact, which Katie brilliantly designed. And also we train kind of other schools. So we're training schools in kind of Bangkok and China, um, all the local state schools get invited. So we train quite a lot of people each year in kind of leadership for flourishing and coaching for flourishing effectively. And also I do kind of pupil leadership as well, taking students away for weekends and trying to kind of embed character and leadership throughout the student body. Awesome. We're going to come on to leadership flourishing. That's going to be the focus of today, but let's just get a bit more on your roles. And Katie, your role, I mean, you guys have many roles outside Wellington as well, but your role at Wellington is head of staff performance is that right yeah staff performance and development and I've just taken on character education as well which is really really exciting so the main thing I do is actually meet staff individually and coach them and see what their performance what they want to perform better so what they need and how they most want to grow kind of in line with Mm -hmm. what Wellington needs but also their personal needs and preferences so that's a great joy. Okay, awesome. Thank you both. Well, you're involved with so many of the projects at the University of Oxford, at Harvard University as well. We're going to come back to those later, but let's dive into leadership to begin with, right? So your work focuses on, as you both said, leadership, flourishing and character as well. And you've written this excellent book on leadership flourishing, Leader, Know, Love and Inspire Your People, which draws upon extensive research on leadership and well-being and offers really detailed practical advice on how to lead to promote flourishing, like really detailed advice on how to coach people as well, coach leaders to promote flourishing. And you've designed, you lead a course for leaders based on this book. So let's start off with what is leadership for flourishing? Yeah, so it's something we're really developing at the moment, but it's the behaviours, practices of leaders that enables flourishing at the individual, community, organisational, team and societal level. And yeah, so it's really, really interesting because it requires you to think deeply about what leadership means and also what flourishing means and then how the two intersect. I think a really important thing to say about leadership for flourishing is that we don't believe leaders have to have a role or a formal set of responsibilities. 
So you can see a three-year-old, for example, enacting leadership for flourishing in the playground of a nursery where someone's being unkind to their friend or take something away from them. And they stand up to that other child and maybe get the child another toy. And equally, you can see it in the 94-year-old in the care home who's organising a bingo evening to boost the flourishing of those around them. And it's not just limited as well to people, but we're also really interested in the planets too. So my background, my degree, my first degree is geography. So we think that it's really, really important within Leadership for Flourishing to consider environmental sustainability as well as human sustainability and human flourishing. I love what you said there, Katie. We so believe that kind of leadership is about influence, not position. And yet one of the things that makes us so passionate about this research is also the power you have when you're in a position. And McKinsey did a a really interesting report called The Boss Factor in 2020, where they showed that the relationship with management was the top factor in employees' job satisfaction which was the second most important determinant of their overall well-being. So if we want people to flourish, we cannot ignore this leadership piece. We've got to focus on it and empower leaders to do it well. Otherwise, we will never enable people to flourish. Yeah, I mean, so right, because what's so interesting is that psychological research shows us that people look to those in leadership positions, those with power, and they actually spend more time physically looking at them. Their attention is much more directed to them. So you have that aspect of it. But then you also have the aspect where if you are in a position of leadership, you have power your decisions make a much bigger impact on people's lives than if you aren't in a position of power. So it's both and. So leadership is about influence, it's about impact. It's not dependent upon role, but if you are privileged enough to be given a position of power, position of leadership, then actually using that for flourishing can be even more impactful. I want to double click on using that for flourishing. And I want to, obviously all four of us, you know, nerd out on this quite a bit. And John and I always ask this question, I want to understand really concretely what you both, either as individuals or as a a working pair, really think about as human flourishing. Because I also heard well-being is central, right, is really kind of necessary in order to be a good leader or the focus of your people's well-being. Well-being and flourishing are not always the same thing, but maybe we're using them synonymously. Like, tease out some of these details for us. Kate, I'll let you do the kind of researchy, geeky bit on this and I'll do the kind of headline, which is <laughs> we love Tyler's work on flourishing and the fact it's multidimensional. I think, you know, we, we love the whole kind of, we'll definitely sign up for the whole eudonomic flourishing. It's about what really matters and purpose and belonging and relationships. It's not just subjective well-being that you can flourish when you're having a really hard time. And I think we've that's where the kind of character piece comes in for us. That question on the flourishing index about kind of, you know, I choose to do good, even if it's difficult and how much of a determinant of flourishing that is. So I think, yeah, multidimensional, eudonomic, rooted in character. Katie, make it more complicated for me. <laughs> no, I fully agree with that. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And obviously, I spent quite a lot of years trying to put a definition onto it. I think Certainly in PhD research, what was interesting was what was most important to people for their flourishing was variable. And so it is quite individualized, but there are definitely these headline things that you absolutely have to have to be flourishing. I'd agree with Tyler and the team at the Human Flourishing Programme in terms of complete well-being would be a good start point. And certainly, exactly as Emmy says, within that, you've got to have relationships. You've got to have warm, caring, supportive relationships 
and you have to have meaning and purpose. So, and ideally you want to be the meaning and purpose is something that you are working towards in relationships, in positive relationships. Um, we're getting really interested in love as the foundation of flourishing and talking to Professor Matt Lee about that a lot as well. And the argument that really flourishing is seeing your love make a difference in the world, which is something that he says, because that kind of encapsulates the most important elements of it. It encapsulates meaning and purpose. It implies relationships and it implies good character, implies virtue, because you can't be seeing your love make a difference in the world if you're behaving in a way that is full of vice. Yeah. Okay. Thank you both for sharing. Just to clarify a bit more, a few more details for our audience. Tyler, Katie and me, I mean, Tyler Vanderweel, Professor Tyler Vanderweel is director of the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard. The account that he puts forward the definition of flourishing is a state in which all aspects of a person's life are good, including the context in which a person lives. I take it that's that's in in a nutshell. The headline, is, as Amy put it, that's in a nutshell the, the account you're drawing upon. But also, you mentioned eudaimonic well-being. This account of eudaimonia, going back to Aristotle, emphasize the emphasis on character, right? Because you both work on character a lot, the, the development of good character, and then. Of course, the, everything you said about relationships and love. And this comes up pretty consistently. I want to make sure what I think is at least implicit is explicit for the audience. What I heard there when you referenced meaning, purpose, character, but not necessarily subjective well-being, is you're thinking about flourishing. We're thinking about love and inspiration and this like preponderance of pleasantness in the relationship and the exchange, but not pleasantness exclusively. As in, there is room for the utility, right, or the necessity of unpleasantness in some scenarios and situations, just as there would be between loved ones trying to work on a relationship as well from time to time. Do I have that correct, that sort of, not tension, but kind of delicate balance or ratio, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. And as Emmy was saying earlier, it is possible to flourish when things are really, really hard. And it's something I saw really profoundly in the military and in some ways, a number of the soldiers would flourish more in on an operational tour in Iraq or Afghanistan mm. than they would in barracks because they were in these dependent relationships. They were suffering together, but they were mm. suffering in order to protect their brother and soldier sister, in order to make people's lives in Afghanistan or Iraq better. So it was really interesting. And I guess that there is some interesting and new research coming out that shows that a focus on hedonic well-being can actually be really problematic for flourishing. So Anna Lemke's work, you did a brilliant interview with her. And her book, Dopamine Nation, um, explains this really effectively. And the pleasure-pain balance is a really good example of where too much pleasure can actually eventually lead to pain because your body wants to go back to homeostasis, your brain wants to be in balance. So too much dopamine is going to cause pain. So, and then I suppose the other person who's really interesting on this is Barb Fredrickson and her genomic perspective on hedonic and eudaimonic well-being was a really interesting paper as well, because I think that's the first time that they've looked at it using a kind of biological study. And what they found was that people who were self-report high on hedonic well-being or really the pleasant feeling, subjective well-being, happiness, good emotions, or positive emotions rather than good emotions, actually they had higher inflammatory markers, which an inflammation is 
linked to all of the nasty diseases that we really don't want, like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, etc. Whereas those who are high on eudaimonic well-being, so were self-reporting that they were high on relationships and meaning and purpose, they were actually found to have lower levels of inflammation. And it looked like their immune systems were working more efficiently as well, which is quite pioneering work. And also, I guess, just adds to the argument that you don't need to be sitting on a beach in Ibiza, listening to great music and drinking fantastic wine all year to be flourishing. In fact, that's probably going to massively undermine your ability to flourish. Uh, having read that paper, I'm curious to dig into it now, though. Did Barbara go about establishing any sort of like hypotheses or maybe causal mechanisms? Because I hear that and my head goes to if I'm very hedonic in my orientation, I'm saying yes to pleasurable things a lot. And unfortunately, maybe a, a fact of life is a lot of <laughs> unbridled pleasurable things are often bad for us when experienced in excess. Did the paper go into that at all? Or did it stop at the level of correlation? Stops at the level of correlation. Okay. It's Interesting. Just- just interesting that this line of research is starting to open up. And I guess it's supported mm-hmm. with things like number of people dying in studies who've been volunteering versus those who haven't been volunteering and things like that. I guess it's just another piece of evidence that is drawing us towards the conclusion that an entirely pleasurable hedonic life, even if it doesn't involve substances that are bad for our physical health or activities that are bad for our physical health, may not be the best thing for flourishing. And let's I mean, jump in here. I cut you off yeah. earlier. Yeah. I was going to say, if you parent or teach teenagers like we do, you see this all the time, don't you? You know, it's very easy to improve your subjective well-being by avoiding all your homework and spending your whole time at parties or at coffee shops. It doesn't help your long-term flourishing. We know this is true, don't we, even without the research, but it's good to have the research to prove it. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Thank you for sharing both. So let's dig in to leadership. What makes great leader? Because you guys are experts on this. And this is what your book does. It puts forward an account of what it means to become a great leader and how to do it. Leaders, you write, who enable others to flourish. So let's start with that question. What makes a great leader? One way I I like thinking this actually comes from um, Frey and Morris at Harvard, who wrote a book called Leadership Unleashed. And they do a really simple kind of graph, which obviously I'm an economist, I love plotting anything, where they plot kind of other people's performance against time. And they say, when you start as a leader, a great leader means that everyone else's performance goes up. So it's not about you. It's about everyone else around you. And that mm. you should judge your leadership not by being in, inward looking or yourself, but by looking at everyone around you and saying, how are they doing? If they're all performing better than when I was there, then I've been a, been a good leader. And the great leaders, when they go, the trajectory keeps going up because I've embedded a mm. culture that then stays. I just thought that was a lovely kind of visual picture of it. So, so far, a great leader creates a culture which has longevity even beyond their departure beyond their legacy if you like a culture that transcends their role as the leader there it has a legacy and promotes the highest level performance of everyone that they are leading so far right it's not just about them it's not their own movie mm. them at the center them doing everything it's everyone else around them improving their performance and i also like ed brooks the oxford character project talks a lot about ethics and efficacy that actually we need you need character and skills and a good leader too and um, you can't just be really really nice and incompetent we know that's not good leadership but neither can you have all the skills and no character. And out of those two, the character is obviously the the most important thing, but you need those two together so that that good character results in wise decision-making when it hits the ground. 
Any particularly important aspects of character? Any character skills that are essential for a great leader? Yeah, I think definitely courage, love and hope. So we've just built with the Oxford Character Project and the Human Flourishing Programme, a course called Leading with Character. And those are the three virtues that we really wanted to emphasise. And I think it's really interesting leaders that I've seen, this is just anecdotal evidence, but the ones who really can lead with courage, love and hope are the ones that are making the most enormous impact. So we can take teenagers. So for example, with our Global Social Leaders Programme, where we ask young people around the world to do social action projects in order to make their community a bit better and grow themselves as leaders. We had a team in Rwanda, 15-year-old girls, and they were really concerned about the mental health of some veterans in a local village because these veterans from the Civil War in Rwanda tragically had sustained serious, serious injuries. So they were left in a rehabilitation centre well outside the village, and they were disabled, so they had to use wheelchairs and they literally physically couldn't get back into the village so these girls showed love for them even though they were completely different to them they were men they were way way older have very little in common these girls totally transcended that they showed a huge amount of courage because they went to the village chief not knowing the village chief and said look we really want to do something to help these veterans they showed more love when they spoke to the veterans and really really listened to them and found out what the veterans really valued. And they showed a lot of hopefulness, a belief that even as 15-year-old girls, they would be able to make a difference in the lives of these kind of 40-odd-year-old veterans. And in the end, they got the whole village together, so literally 150 people, and they built a road out to these veterans. So you got photos of them physically building this road to bring the veterans in. And to me, that's an amazing example of leadership because they have shown those virtues in so much abundance. Other examples, I guess you could look at some CEOs on completely the other end of the spectrum who've done incredibly well financially. So one that would bring to mind would be Hubert Jolie, who was the CEO of Best Buy from 2012 to 2019. He took the electronics retailer from losing billions to earning a 3% net profit margin, which was extraordinary. And he didn't do this in the way that he was advised to. So everybody was telling him when he took it over, you've got to restructure, you've got to have redundancies, you've got to slim down everything. But instead, he really, really invested in what he calls unleashing human magic. And he went to the shop floor, he dressed in the shop uniform, and he really tried to encourage all of the middle leaders to ensure that those under their care were really loved and that also they could connect to their purpose and the purpose of Best Buy to actually make a real difference in the world. And it's quite extraordinary because they were up against people like Amazon and Apple at the time, so the Apple retailers, and yet they were still able to achieve this through loving people, having hope, and having the courage to go against the board and say, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it differently. And I guess Barry Way Miller, CEO, um, Bob Chapman's another brilliant example of where growth has been extraordinary in the company. He actually says that his role as a leader is to see the employees as somebody's precious child and to love them in that way. So instead of what he calls management speak, everybody serves me, everybody serves the company, 
everybody serves the shareholders, we make as much profit as possible. He sees them as a precious child um, to be loved and cared for. And that's been really, really powerful. So made a massive difference in the community. But what's really encouraging about those two examples is they've been so profitable. And we've got good examples on that now. So really good empirical data emerging where you don't need to choose between loving people so that they flourish, being courageous and maybe going against conventional wisdom and being really hopeful. So I I find that really encouraging. Hi, friends. Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most, of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. What I like about those examples, Katie, is that you know, John asked about skills of leadership and actually the, the skills are, we haven't talked about the skills at all because they're almost redundant and that the skill is almost to focus on your character. The skill is to be committed to becoming a good person because we lead out of who we are. And actually the hard work of leadership is therefore that kind of deep reflective process, which is what kind of Nelson Mandela talks about a lot. Because if you do the hard inner work, I love the quote, character is destiny. That character is what then drives that ability to lead. So yeah, the skill is to be committed to becoming a better person and committed to character growth. And then the leadership comes out of who you are. Awesome. Love this. Nick, I know you wanted to double click on some things. Yeah. Can we define character? Because I appreciate it. I more or less understand it. And a lot of it's highly subjective, right? So when I hear becoming a better person, that's different for a lot of different people. And it's 100% going to vary by cultural context at minimum, right? So I'd love to just concretize, you know, you've pulled out three, you know, character traits, virtues, if you will, that we want to really dive into, kind of wrap our heads around and wrestle with in terms of the research and the science. I'll ask why those three, but before we even get to those three, what does character actually mean, right? Why is it so important? Yeah, I mean, the Oxford Character Project says it's the kind of guiding core of who we are. So it's that kind of mosaic of qualities that we develop over time and that govern how we kind of perceive and think and feel and act. So it's both our kind of aspiration to be a certain kind of person, but also how we act and live out our values. And I like the idea that this kind of good character um, is at the heart of what it means to live well and to flourish. And so those positive traits we talked about, like um, courage, Love and hope are kind of virtues, ways of being that contribute to not only our own well-being, 
but also the well-being of those around us. So I think that's how I, we kind of think about good character, that ability to kind of live well in a way that enables the flourishing of others and ourselves. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds on the character piece, but the, the thought that occurred to me is any strength or trait can be a double-edged sword, right? You can overuse courage or use it in a candidly a pretty, like improbable, stupid scenario, right? It can get, get you into a lot of trouble. Same thing as love, right? As, as odd as that might sound. So I'm, you know, probably hard to quantify, but I'm curious how you and your research and, and certainly in the book or how you might recommend leaders try to find that sweet spot, if that makes sense, and strike that balance. Yeah, it's hard. And we're definitely influenced by Aristotle on this and the golden mean. So Aristotle would certainly say with courage, courage is the ideal. Recklessness would be the end of using that strength too much. And then cowardice would be not using courage enough. So I guess from a theoretical point of view, we are influenced by Aristotle's work there. In terms of how you know, I think this is where Emmy's point is so important about reflection. And it really is, we say that leadership is a lifelong journey of becoming a better person because it's all about reflection. It's all about that phrenesis or practical wisdom. And I guess we try to fill this gap slightly in our book, particularly with love, because love you can get really wrong. So we said that you've got to know people first before you can love them, because I could offer some sort of support to you, Nick. Maybe I could say, oh, don't worry, I'll host your podcast for you. You go and have a rest and go and lie on the beach for a bit. But actually, you probably would hate me to do that. For example, if John were about to teach a lecture at a university, I said to him, oh, don't worry, here are all the slides, here's your script, off you go. I might think that's a really great act of love, but John might find that highly patronising. And so, whereas a brand new lecturer who's just had a baby and isn't getting any sleep and for that particular period in their life might find it unbelievably helpful to have that level of support. So I guess with love, it's being really careful about knowing people as well as possible. And the skill involved in that is listening, listening really openly and creating a culture where people feel safe to tell you exactly what they need rather than trying to cover it up. So yeah, Emmy, do you want to add to that? Because no, absolutely right. I think that idea of the golden mean, but it brings in the kind of like meta virtue of wisdom. So we're trying to kind of make, you know, wise thinkers and good leaders. That wisdom is the thing you need to bring the virtues together and know when they're becoming vices and how you balance them if there's ever a conflict. So I think, yes, they have to be held together by that wisdom. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, thank you both. So we have the three core skills or character strengths in your account. Leadership, love, courage, hope. But your book, you also put forward another list of three, the three key lessons that makes that make a leader a great leader. They know, love, and inspire their people, which is the subtitle of your book. And you your book orients around these lessons with two chapters on each. So tell us about these three lessons and why they're so important for flourishing leaders. Touched on kind of knowing knowing kind of other people really well that we can't help others flourish if and we can't lead them if we don't know them we don't know their strength we don't know their values we don't know what's going on in their life but equally as we've said already you have to know yourself without that kind of self-reflection there is no character growth and if we don't know our own values we can't 
live them well and authentically and therefore lead in a way that people want to follow. So I think knowing ourselves and others is a really kind of critical place to start. And it links with that virtue of courage in that it takes a huge amount of courage to lead ourselves and to put ourselves out in the world and to live out our values and to come back after failure and to face up to our weaknesses. So I I think the virtues tie in very much with this idea of knowing ourselves and knowing others. What would you add to that, Katie? No, absolutely. The only other thing I might add is knowing strengths. So um, it's really Mm -hmm. helpful for people to know their own strengths, obviously not to overuse them, as Nick was saying, but actually to know their strengths and for leaders to know people's strengths and really focus on them. I think that's really helpful. Gallup's obviously, I guess, the leader on the strengths research and their research on it is quite compelling, particularly when you link it to engagement. Absolutely. And okay, so of those strengths, the top three are courage, love, hope. Let's go for some practical advice too, because your book, it really is bursting with practical advice. It's so useful. I I highlighted so many things that I'm going to use myself. Let's go through this as one example. What's a good way for a flourishing leader, a leader who promotes flourishing, to identify their own character strengths, but also help to identify their teams, members of their team's character strengths? I mean, for strengths, you can just do the VIA strength survey together and talk about it. That's a great way to do it. And you can also just ask people. I think the whole point about leadership in a complex world and with real people is that you need to have honest conversations Mm -hmm. and also pay attention and be present and listen. It's the same with discovering values. I think I, I could ask you directly what your values were, John, if I wanted to know. And you might say, you know, integrity. And I could ask you, well, what does that actually even mean for you? Because it might mean something completely different to you to it does to me. But equally, I could probably spot your values in any conversation we had. If I asked you what your favorite film in the world is, I bet somehow it links to your values. You know, whatever those are, they're kind of, you can start to spot them kind of wherever you go. Right. So you do it in implicit conversations as well as explicit conversations, in addition to asking people's strength. Maybe sometimes they're not super deep questions either. It's like, you know, what is your favorite film? I don't want to deny that's not a deep question, right? But (laughs) it's not like, you know, who was your first love or something like that? You know, what's your dream or something? And pick out strengths from that too. Great. Anything you want to add to that, Katie? Yeah, I think actually what is your dream is a really, really helpful question for leaders to be asking. It's such a powerful coaching question and so many great things come from it. And I think we know our last lesson is inspire your people. And that's all around connecting the purpose of the organization, the purpose of the team with the individual's purpose. And so actually being able to do that, there was a great example in The Heart of Business, which is by Hubert Jolie, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. where someone's dream was actually to be able to pay off their flat. And the whole team was completely behind them and desperately trying to you know, create as much profit as possible so that this person could pay off their flat, which is a, a good example. I guess values, yeah. I love questions like, three lessons that you would want to teach children in the world. I guess as an educator, I've got a bit of a a bias towards that one. What drives you crazy? So say, for example, if you're reading the papers, what is it that really triggers you, that really makes you angry? And that can be a really good indicator of values as well, because we tend to have a really intense emotional reaction when our values are crossed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, one value, if you were to ask me what my values are, and you probably would know this already, one of mine is definitely authenticity. Mm. And I, I think that's definitely one of yours too. Knowing both of you, you're definitely deeply authentic people. It wasn't a surprise to me to see that you emphasized the role of authenticity in your book is so important for leadership and for flourishing leadership. 
Tell us why authenticity is so important for leadership and flourishing. Easy answer to this one. I was, I was pondering it, John, or even has to define authenticity. But I do yeah. think we know it when we see it. And they're the kind of people we want to follow. The people who yeah. say what they mean and they say the same thing behind someone's back as they do to their face, whose actions back up their words. And when we see it, we love it. And we would they're the yeah. people we would kind of get up at five in the morning for and do anything they asked, you know, without hesitation. It's what makes you want to give your absolute best to someone because they've got your back and you believe that who they are is it's through and through. It's that stick of rock, isn't it? It's where everywhere you cut it, it's the same all the way through. And it doesn't mean they're mm-hmm. not perfect. I mean, they, they may occasionally make a mistake, but you know when they did, they would own up and go, I got this wrong. I went against my values. I shouldn't have done it. I was scared and I'm so sorry. It's that mm-hmm. ability to, you know, be trying your best to, to live it out. Right. So they're, the authentic person lives in alignment with their values. They are reliable, but they're also reliable in the sense in which they kind of have self-understanding and self-knowledge. And, and if they do mess something up, make a mistake, they're the kind of person who takes ownership of responsibility for it. They don't deny it, don't face up to it, right? Yeah, I think there's a willingness to be vulnerable as well. I think that's so important because that allows other people to be vulnerable and say when they are finding things difficult and they need help. And I think that's really relaxing for people. And once you've got that kind of environment, people are much more willing to take risks. They'll tell you the truth. They won't hide things. And so I think that's really powerful as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's courage, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it takes a huge amount of courage. Yeah, to face up to yourself because, I mean, you're right. This is a really hard notion to define authenticity, and and many philosophers have tried to do so. I think of authenticity. One integral part of it is taking ownership of yourself and your actions and responsibilities, which requires quite a deep level of self knowledge and self understanding to be able to be true to yourself and take ownership of your ideas, actions, beliefs, and so on. You got to know what they are. So it requires quite a deep process of self-reflection and then actually living in such a way that honors that. It's very demanding. Yeah, I like what you said about you make a mistake and you own up to it. You don't make to make excuses for it or maybe any excuses. You you acknowledge, I did this wrong. Here's why. And I'm going to try and live in accordance with not doing that thing again, for example. And it requires an inner security because if, if you're trying to constantly get your needs met by everyone else affirming you, then you've constantly changed, don't you? Because I think, oh, John will like me if I do this better. I better change who I am for him. And then I'm going to change who I am for Katie because yeah. then she loves it when I'm yeah. like this. And then you can't be authentic. So there's got to be something quite deep-rooted in saying, actually, who I am it, it is this. And yes, I'm prepared to change, but I'm not constantly looking to be what everyone else needs all the time. Uh, yeah, so that would be like a lack of ownership for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You're You're letting yourself be kind of owned by others in the sense in which you're being too much of a chameleon around other people, blending too much such that your own view, your own viewpoint, your own beliefs and ideas aren't coming through. They're being drowned out by those of other people. Yours kind of the ownership you have yourself is slipping away. Yeah, ownership's a really helpful term, actually, for authenticity. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for emphasizing that kind of notion so much for leadership in your book. That that really comes through quite a lot. Let's also talk about teams. We're talking about leaders here, and you can't separate, as we start off this conversation, separating the leader from the team, because the leader is the person who brings out the best in their team. But we're focusing the conversation so far on kind of what makes a great leader individually. What are some of the most important factors for outstanding team performance? Because you guys don't just work with leaders, you work with full teams as well and try and optimize the performance of teams in, you know, really high performing environments throughout your lives. So civil service and army and now in education institutions, very high-performing education institutions. So what makes a great team? What are some of the most important factors for optimizing the performance of a team? 
I'd love to um, maybe start with Google. So only because I think when Google ask a question, they throw huge resource at it and they've got phenomenal analytical tools. And so Project Aristotle asked this question, what leads to excellent performance in teams? And they really found it very, very difficult to find the answer. So they had put huge amounts of resource into it. But even after a year, they really hadn't come up with any answers. So they started mm. by thinking about IQ. So if you put a bunch of people with really high IQ into a team, surely they're going to perform really highly. Um, they also looked at prior success and experience and assumed that would be it. And they also looked at demographics and a couple of other things. And then they realized that they were actually looking in completely the wrong place. So rather than looking at individuals, they need to look at the whole team. And um, that was kind of prompted by an article by MIT Group in Science Magazine called The Power of Collective Intelligence. And once they started looking at the team as a whole and eventually how the team reacted to each other, and responded to each other and related to each other, that's when they finally found out what it was. And the key was that people were able to relate to each other in a really open, authentic, trusting, warm, caring way. And I think authentic, caring, go back to love. Yeah. <laughs> I say we start. We did. We did no love in spawn. We talked about no and not enough about love. Given that this one that we think is the most important part of it. Well, love was the only one that I remember came through as the key character skill, right? So we have these two lists of three: no love and inspire your people. That's the key things leading us to do. But then the key skills being love, hope, and courage. So love is the connection, as it were, between the two. Yeah. But would you say then, Emmy and Katie, that love encapsulates those areas you just mentioned there, bringing out the best of the team? 100%. Yeah. Emmy, why don't you expand on it? Well, no, I was going to say, just, just because leadership is fundamentally relational, so it's all about the quality of relations, and all the Google work was about psychological safety and collective intelligence really came back to the quality of those relationships, which is probably best summed up in, I've got a favourite quote on this by Matt Lee, who also kind of links back to Bob Chapman's work, Everybody Matters. Mm -hmm. Am I allowed to quote mm -hmm. it? It's a bit of a long quote, but I think of it's course, summed please. No, it summarizes it really nicely. And he says, um, love is not, as some suppose, an optional emotion to be expressed, but an actionable pursuit of flourishing with practical benefits. And he links it to educational settings and says that love engages students, motivates educators, reduces complaints, thins policy manuals, informs restorative discipline, allows for creative solutions, nurtures diversity, respects autonomy, furnishes positivity, laments injustice adapts to any environment and is cost effective love forms human flourishing forms flourishing humans what every educator sets out to do and i thought that was a lovely kind of summary of how practical love is and why it's the thing that kind of makes every team perform so well wow yeah i love that and now i'm getting a clearer grasp and i hope the audience is getting a clearer grasp on how love is such a key characteristic for a leader both as a character skill but also bringing that out of the team and, and leading in that kind of way. I love that quote from Matthew Lee. And yeah, we'll share a link to, to his work in, in the show notes. And he, of course, has a chapter on the role of life in education in a, in a book I'm co-editing called The Future of Education coming out soon. Provide a link to that in the future when that's available. Awesome. Now, I mentioned earlier in the conversation the sum of the many projects you guys have, because you really do have a lot on. I, I really don't know how many hours you you guys somehow have managed to live like 30-hour days or something to do all this. Let's talk about some of these. So we've mentioned your book, Leader. You're involved in many projects with the Oxford Character Project, the University of Oxford, the Oxford Wellbeing Centre, the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard, Global Social Leaders and Wellington College. So let's go through some of these and 
love to hear what you're working on at the moment and what's on the horizon for both of you. So tell us about your organization, Leadership for Flourishing, and your Leadership for Flourishing course that's based on your book. Oh, so the Leadership for Flourishing group is a real privilege to co-lead with Emmy, and really we're co-hosting with everyone So we've got neuroscientists from Harvard, we've got senior leaders from various organizations, Uh, we've got a virtue ethicists, and yeah, people from around the world as well. So that's been really, really exciting and really dynamic and sparky. And people have really, really supported each other on some very exciting projects. So we've had a conference, which was great, which you fantastically spoke at and were wonderful. But also, we've got a book coming out with OUP, Oxford University Press, shortly called Leadership for Flourishing, which mostly it's members of our group are writing chapters for. So that's been really exciting. Awesome. Great. That's Is that out next year, 2024? Yeah, or 25, depending on okay. how well we get through it. <laughs> Okay, well, we will be promoting it on podcast when it when it comes out. Keep us posted. We'll at some point share a link when, when a link is ready. That's Leadership Flourishing course and the forthcoming book you have coming out. And you lead a, a subgroup of the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard's Flourishing Network on Leadership for Flourishing. You also have something called Global Social Leaders. Tell us about this. Uh, this, again, has been a real privilege. So co-founded that 10 years ago with a wonderful guy called John Harper. We really, really believed in the power of social action. So young people working on projects and making a difference in the world for their own growth, but also bring communities together. And so we've been working on government programs, for example, National Citizen Service together. But we felt that we really wanted to do something global because there's a lot of power in connecting young people from totally different cultures and actually seeing the commonalities and that they really do care about the same things. So that's been really exciting. And we've got young people in 105 countries now doing these projects. So we've had thousands and thousands of examples of projects and we're excited because this year we're getting some scholars from Harvard and various other universities together to look at the impact of this because we think it provides some brilliant examples of leadership for flourishing and often when you can see people taking action and really getting a huge amount from it and being successful that can be really inspiring so we're excited and grateful for that but yeah that's all from age probably seven through to about 19 but hopefully it seems that it cultivates a habit of social action so it seems that they do continue serving when they leave high school and go on to whatever they're going on to awesome are there any forthcoming events coming up for that uh yeah we have catalysts all the time throughout the year and we have a lot of online ask the experts and then we'll do an online festival we used to do it in person but then covid stopped that and then we were a bit concerned about our carbon footprint flying young people around the world so we've mostly gone online with it which seems to be working better and makes it more inclusive as well awesome and tell us about your work with the oxford character project yeah, we've been very lucky to work um, with particularly with Dr. Ed Brooks there. So during COVID, we decided it would be great to do some sort of online course to help leaders who were really facing challenging times. So we worked with Ed Brooks and with Professor Matt Lee at Harvard and turned our book into this online course, which was so much fun and very much kind of on the back of our phones, you know, or in, in our houses. And it was really mm-hmm. exciting. It seemed to somehow hit home and make a difference and we had an amazing call just this week 
with somebody working in hospitals in the US who said that she had I've got a load of people kind of high up in healthcare to take the course. And there were two women who took it who were already quite high up who decided they wouldn't go further for leadership because their style of leadership would never work. And yet they did this course and changed their mind and like, actually, maybe I can be loving and still lead. And they went for promotion. And that was just such a I guess such an exciting outcome for us to see people taking that on board and giving them confidence to lead for flourishing. And with yeah. the Oxford Couch, we're now making it into a new course that's going to be online, free access, and really exciting. We have a much more global voice. So really trying to make leadership less kind of Western-centric and bring in views and voices from around the world and make this really useful for everybody. So that new kind of more global version of the course will be coming out called Leading with Character, and hopefully in the next month. Awesome. Well, yeah, please send us the link. We'll include that in the show notes too. And you also run courses on coaching flourishing. I've taken one. <laughs> I think this is how I first properly met you. This would have been like around May 2021. So tail end of the pandemic. Well, not quite. Yeah, I know it's sort of tail end, wasn't it? The final summer of the pandemic. I remember taking an online course that you guys led brilliantly on coaching for flourishing at Wellington College's Leadership and Coaching Institute. Tell us how you coach for flourishing. Tell us about this. Oh, the coaching courses are fantastic. And we're really grateful to Ian Henson, a colleague who first decided that it would be a wonderful thing for the school. And that really set us on the coaching path. I think the key thing, as we said, I think we believe the key skill for flourishing is listening because love and relationships are so absolutely fundamental. Mm-hmm. So listening actually gives you incredibly supportive and generous and trusting relationships so that would be the first thing really really asking people to listen because I think when you give people a really loving listening ear and have no strings attached you completely believe in the other person you want the very very best for them that can be quite transformational and I think that's really the foundation and then I guess it's just helping people connect to what's really important to them and making sure that they're living their lives in a way that is in line with their values and that is in line with a way that's going to help them to flourish. So trying to avoid the pitfalls of things that give you immediate pleasure or maybe kind of ticking things off a to-do list, but aren't actually that good for your long-term flourishing. So we definitely do a lot around values, how you're using your time, what's really important to you. But we also look at perspectives as well, because sometimes we can get really stuck in behaviours that aren't serving us and that aren't serving others just because of a perspective that we have on it. Mm -hmm. So let me clarify if I understood correctly kind of the the core of your lessons on leadership for flourishing, that the three most important lessons for leaders to promote flourishing in their teams and to be leaders who promote flourishing more generally are to know, love and inspire their people. Mm -hmm. The three most important character strengths to cultivate are love, hope, and courage. And the most important skill to build is listening skills. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. And your book goes through, as I've said, a really detailed advice on how you can build your listening skills and ask excellent questions as a coach and so on. All right. So you hinted at various things that you're doing at the moment and everything on the horizon. Is there anything we haven't covered you'd like to mention that's on the horizon for you guys? You've got your book coming out, these new courses, anything else that it's worth mentioning here. 
super grateful to be working with Jim Ritchie Dunham as well on mm. and Joanne Flett and Matt Lee on a paper called Leadership for Flourishing. It's really great because it's shining a light on Jim's work with banks which provide microloans to people and mm. the data set is absolutely huge. So it's trying to bring together the theoretical a method for leadership for flourishing, which we call loving collective inquiry. And also mm. the data set, which is really interesting. It's one of the biggest data sets on this particular area. So really excited about that. And great, great privilege to be working with those incredible scholars. Absolutely. Okay. So we're now at the point of our final question. And you will both be familiar with this as such keen supporters of our podcast. So as you know, we like to ask all of our guests a flourishing question. What's one lesson on flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with? And what is a practical step putting it into action? I'm going to start with you, Emmy. We obviously have talked about it in case we have the same lesson, but I'm going to assume we don't. And I'm uh, going <laughs> to say my lesson would be, I think that just that phrase that character is destiny, that who you are determines where you go. And therefore, the practical skill is to take time to reflect and to work on that kind of inner, inner mastery and self-leadership. Nice. Thank you, both of you. It's been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. My friends, Emmy Bidston and Dr. Katie Gramble-Chapman doing such inspiring, awesome work in so many areas. Really excited to see the future of your work and continue to work with you as well. And I highly recommend to our listeners their book, Leader, Know, Love and Inspire Your People. Thank you both. Thank you for listening today, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Flourish FM. We hope you enjoyed the content. Please be sure to leave us a five-star review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast and on all major social media platforms. And if you visit our website, flourishfmpodcast.com, you can sign up to our newsletter. We send out a weekly newsletter. First newsletter of every month, we share a long-form blog. And every newsletter, every week, we share highlights from our previous episodes. Please hit subscribe on our website. 